Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. podcast i'm mark lane and you can find me on twitter at the real mark lane be sure to subscribe to us on apple spotify TuneIn, and stitcher rate us and go ahead and write a review if you like if you are so gene siskily inclined i'm joined by sean martin as always you can find him on twitter at sean martin nfl sean how goes it Hey, what's happening, Mike? Let me get my allotment on one random off-topic question per so out of the way early here, although I can't promise I'm going to stick to that since we have now a whole show to go. But what is your favorite minor league baseball team name? I'd have to say the uh, uh, Round Rock Express. Are you just trying to play to the home crowd, knowing that I live not far from their stadium? No, because that's pretty cool that they named a minor league team after uh, Nolan Ryan. It is, and on that note, they play another team from Sugar Land. It used to be the Skeeters, but now they're the Sugar Land Space Cowboys, which is awesome. You know, it doesn't get much more Houston than that than being the Space Cowboys, so that's a team name to appreciate. But I ask because I was this week years old when I learned that there's a team in Kentucky, Florence, Kentucky, called the Florence Yalls, and their mascot is based off the water tower in town which says, you know, welcome to Florence, y'all, or something along those lines, and has red and white candy stripes, and so their mascot is just this red and white candy striped-looking guy, and they were the Florence, y'all, so they wear probably the best color in baseball history, which is like the throwback-style powder blue that the Phillies used to wear and such. So everything about the Florence, y'all, is awesome. I'm buying stock in the Florence, y'all, as soon as I can. That's awesome. What league are they in, you know? They are in the independent uh, Frontier League of the Independent League. Oh, nice. Well, um, y'all come back now, you hear? That should be what they say after every ball game. I hope they do, yeah. But like I said, the powder blue and the red, too. I mean, they got everything going for them. The color scheme, the name is great. Back home, we had a team called the, uh, they were the Lakewood Blue Claws. They recently changed their name to the Jersey Sower Blue Claws to be more, you know, tied into where a place where people can actually know where they're from as opposed to maybe not knowing where Lakewood was on the map. So, Jersey Sword Blue Claws, of course, very fitting to the culture. And you got to appreciate minor league teams that keep their names to, you know, the culture of where they are. I mean, we probably cover the NFL team as the best example of that. You know, I don't know if there's any Bears and around Soldier Field in Chicago, but I sure know that Cowboys in Texas makes a lot of sense. So we covered a team that follows that mold the closest in the NFL. But minor league baseball just takes it to a whole new level with, you know, a y'all's team named after the fact that the water tower says y'all and, a team at the Jersey Shore named after a blue crab and, you know, a team in Houston named the Space Cowboys. Yeah, it definitely makes for that flavor feel, you know, that regional flavor feel uh, with the way that minor league 
teams do it. And, you know, just because one team's doing it that way, you know, the rest of them kind of copycat. And the NFL is similar in its copycat ways because, oh, analytics. And that's what the Cowboys have done over this offseason is hire a couple of people for their, oh, analytics. And I take kind of a derisive tone to that because I, I think it's a little more a kind of a showmanship part on the on the side of the Cowboys than it is anything substantive. Do you really think this many hires can be, you know, showmanship though? I mean, if it was one or two and then Jerry was hyping it up like, well, now I think we have one of the best analytics in the league and these two are going to be, you know, far above and everybody would just laugh because if you, you know, do a minute of research, you can find other teams that have much bigger departments than just two. So it's like, okay, Jerry, see what you want, but we know that this isn't real. But I mean, this is a real investment. And of course, we don't know, you know, what these guys are making and nor should we any of those things, but this is still a real investment and, you know, building a staff that's part of the team payroll and all those types of things for, putting the work in and being in the building every day, either around these coaches, the players or both. And, you know, it's, it's an ever growing list of a real analytics department that if they are just kind of a, there for show, it's a, it's certainly a good show. It's a full, you know, uh, B-roll, be, you know, actors in the background type of thing to, to make this look like a full department. The head of it is director of strategic football ops, new position for John Park. He was hired from, the Indianapolis Colts, always good to see, you know, people that worked with Chris Ballard, um, you know, being brought into not only the Cowboys, but around the league, because we know that Chris Ballard is considered one of the better GMs and one of the more forward-thinking GMs at that. And he replaced Tom Robinson, who had the same role with the Cowboys since 2014. It's not exactly a brand new thing to be talking about this team having some form of analytics. Tom Robinson had what is now John Park's position since that 2014 season. Even before that, he was with the team in other capacities since 2010. They've hired William Britt this offseason. He came from the Pittsburgh Steelers by way of a double major in college in data science and computer science, played football and basketball there as well, and then worked analytically you know, in both sports to um, use that data science and computer science background to analyze the numbers as you will there. Max Lyons is kind of being called the IT guy of this group, and I don't mean that in any kind of negative way he's just kind of the organizer of you know everything that they'll use analytically all the different spreadsheets and different apps and data tracking we already hear a good amount from McCarthy and the top coaches about the GPS tracking you know anything that has to do with the data they actually need to do their job it seems like Max Lyons is going to be the guy for that as he gets reacclimated to what analytics in the NFL look like this is his first NFL job in 10 years so he was kind of getting in on analytics at the beginning 10 years ago. Whatever that looked like is sure to be much different now. So he'll be in for a learning curve of that. And an exciting one, I would think, to you know see how far the field he started in has come. And until then, he's kind of the database guy. And then two more, Brian Davis, a strategic football analyst, spent the last four seasons in the baseball world with the Tampa Bay Rays. Of course, being a Yankee fan, the Rays have been a foreign in my team's side. And Analytics uh, so do seem to be a part of that. I mean, the Rays just outsmart a lot of teams. They get players that far out proceed, you know, outplay the back of their baseball card, if you will. And they just seem to put together rosters that far outseed expectations year in and year out. And 
analytic teams to death and over contend above where they should be in a tough AL East division. So that's exciting to have Brian Davis from the baseball world. You can think of, you know, Paul DePodesta and those Moneyball um, Oakland A's teams is like the most notable analytics and baseball guy. And DePodesta ended up going to work for the Browns, who are one of the more serious about analytics teams in the NFL as well. And then lastly, Sarah uh, Malapali, strategic football analyst as well. And she was with another very forward-thinking analytics team, also from the AFC North, with the Browns. The Baltimore Ravens have been known for pushing analytics, and she was with their staff as well. So a lot of exciting things when you really dig into what this staff is made of as far as not being fresh off the street into analytics and not knowing what they're doing. They have the experience, and they can bring it from past teams that have succeeded to hopefully bring it to the Cowboys and have that same level of success. Yeah, I wonder if the analytics, you hit on it with that hire who came from the Rays. I wonder if they're actually using this analytics not so much for the on-field product because you would figure that the coaching staff and the offensive and defensive quality control guys would have an idea of what's happening on the field. They already have some of that information. But I wonder if this analytics department, with how heavy they are, if they're actually trying to figure out what to do with the contracts coming up. Because you've got Diggs, you've got CeeDee Lamb, you've got Pollard, you've got Parsons, you've got Dak Prescott, all hitting in this what, 12 to 24 month window. And that that's really what I wonder about the deployment of all of these analysts is, yeah, you know, the positive spin is it's going to help on the field, win games, oh, look at us, we're forward thinking, even though we're the ninth team to do it. But I wonder if they're really trying to figure out the roster building, and that's why they were brought in. Yeah, I see it in some ways as a, you know, leave no stone unturned type of type of move. You know, you talk to anyone around this league and about just the state of the roster as a standalone thing for the Cowboys, not any other outside factor, how they perform in big games or anything else other than just purely what do they have on paper and where does it compare to around the league? And, you know, we sit here around this time every year and say, this roster is pretty good. And we always get ahead of ourselves going into training camp and we can't see how they're going to carry all these guys. And we think every position is so deep and, you know, it's been an annual thing for as long as I can remember. So roster wise, they've been fine. You know, coaching certainly we can do a whole show on, you know, where they've been good, where they've been below average and where they could have improved sooner and all those types of things. So, you know, coaching is still working on, but as long as your head coach is Mike McCarthy, he came in year one talking about, you know, analytics and it was a bit of showmanship to your point at that point of him saying that and then almost taking it back, not immediately, but soon after when it came to like, oh, it wasn't, you know, as true as I wanted it on to be that I'm this new you know, newfound analytics type of coach, but still, we know that the pressure is on McCarthy, so we know 
in order for that to be a fair way for him to go out. He deserves to, you know, have everything in place that he feels he needs in place to win. You don't want players, especially the amount of veterans and important veterans and guys on short contracts like you just listed that this Cowboys team has. You don't want those types of players playing for a coach that they feel is a lame duck. That's like the worst thing that could happen to this team. So if this is going to be truly a, you know, build up the pressure on McCarthy type of season that we all think it is, he deserves to have everything he feels in place that are going to help this team succeed. And, you know, if analytics are that thing, I'm skeptical, and it sounds like you are as well. But if it is that thing, then we'll just see how it turns out and how much he's actually going to be listening week in and week out to the part of what they have to say for the on-the-field product while the salary cap stuff gets handled, you know, outside of McCarthy's world. It also hedges their bet to a point you've been talking about of, you know, you do have to give McCarthy the tools to succeed, but you want to heads that in a way that if a new coach has to come in here, he's not building from scratch. And I think any new coach would be excited to walk into a potentially big uh, analytics department that the Cowboys have now built. Whether or not they have to fully embrace it or not can be up to them, but at least it's in place if they want it. So, you know, you have the best of both worlds and the best of a lot of smart football minds being added to the star. We know the roster is where it's supposed to be year in and year out. We know, you know, coaching-wise, they're trying to build some continuity. Maybe analytics really is the missing piece, and you can't fault them for always thinking that and trying it at this point. And they sure are trying it, if not just one hire, not just two, but an entire staff that's going to be working with the team this year now. Yeah, my skepticism towards analytics is that it's the secret sauce, that it's the missing piece for this team. You know who has just two people in their analytics department? Well, the Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. You know who has four to five people listed as part of their football analytics and research and all that, the Chicago Bears. So you can have the analytics, but if your application or something else related to your team stinks, then you're just kind of caught in the same sort of doldrums. And that's why I'm skeptical about the analytics as being the secret sauce is for, you know, those reasons. But on the other hand, Mike McCarthy, when he came in, you know, he's probably told, well, we're going to do it Kellen Moore's way. You're going to keep Kellen Moore. Okay. And now that that is proven not to be a successful route, now he's probably sold the Joneses. Hey, I got to have some analytics. And then they've said, all right, well, you got to make these cuts with these coaches, which is why I was like, I've got to do the hard thing and get rid of Rob Davis so I can have that analytics staff. Because in the interview that Mike McCarthy did with Peter King over Thanksgiving in 2019 up in Green Bay at his house, it was like, whoa, I've embraced analytics now. And you're right. That never really came to fruition in the first season, or even really the second season, under McCarthy. But it sure is now, at least as a first step. You know, it's so interesting to think about 
the dynamic of, you know, before McCarthy was, of course, the Jason Garrett era, and even off the year, me and you talk a good amount about, you know, things that happened during the Garrett era and just that whole thing in general. And, you know, you think he coached here for 10 years. What's his, you know, lasting legacy with the team? You know, you know, you could say offensive line thinking, and, you know, they started paying attention to it and drafting well there, and some of those guys are still here, and the foundation that they should still invest in those positions, you know, continued when they took Tyler Smith under McCarthy. So, you know, maybe that's the only answer. But other than that, I mean, what's his impact over a very long, especially in today's NFL, incredibly long tenure that he had without a whole lot of playoff um, success? And then you look at McCarthy, who everybody's already trying to walk out the door, and whether that happens or not within, you know, this year, the next couple of years, whatever that looks like for how McCarthy's tenure probably isn't going to reach the 10-year point. I don't think there's any denying he's made already, you know, a lasting impact with this team. As long as they don't fire this whole analytics department the second, you know, eight years. I mean, he's made a difference. A lot of it has been things that are trying to save his own job and things that are in the short term for a team that wants to be, you know, win now and a team that we just talked about from the quarterback perspective last week. We mentioned Dak Prescott being very open about the urgency to, to go win. So a lot of that is McCarthy trying to echo that and, realizing that for his own sake as a veteran coach too. But even without him, you know, I think his legacy will be felt here. And, you know, for a veteran coach, that's something that's important. No coach has ever won a Super Bowl with multiple teams. So, you know, he has the Super Bowl of Green Bay. He'd all have to do it here in Dallas. But if it doesn't happen, he'll still be able to say his career was a Super Bowl with one historic franchise and a lasting impact, probably for the positive, on another, you know, he's not just going to leave the Cowboys in samples because the roster's been getting so much better under him. Hopefully his play calling leads to taking a next step. If they do have to make another play call or change, it doesn't go back to any type of old ways that you might see under a Kellen Moore, Scott Linehan, or even a Brian Schottenheimer. And then the biggest thing that he'll leave behind now, it seems, is, of course, this analytics department. Yeah, and it's the deployment of the analytics department. Here's what I hope that they do you know, now that they're in, is we pointed this out on the hidden yardage, and I'm sure everybody else can pick up on it. Too. I would expect the analytics department already knows about it, okay? And But I'd love to see some of their solutions as to first and second down efficiency. I think that's the problem with the offense. Yeah, I caught myself watching a few minutes of the playoff awesome last year to the 49ers it was on NFL Network last night and I've really only watched and in what other ways do you torture yourself Sean well I didn't go all the way to you know Ezekiel Elliott snapping the football I just kind of popped in just you know you don't remember every play that happens in a real emotional game like that so I was just kind of checking in to be like oh yeah that did happen or you know you forget how certain things go or especially on the defense side of the ball, you forget, you know, some of the guys who are taking snaps and such. I did watch, you know, Eliza Missile get that huge first down to extend the, the last field goal drive to put up the last points for the, for the 49ers. And I'm like, hey, maybe they have a point with this Mozzie Smith thing because the hole was just wide open, you know, before any of the linebackers could get to him. It was a first down. But I was watching the offense on the drive, you know, not before the desperation, the last one, but when they really had a chance and it was still, within reach of, you know, four or five minutes left and some timeouts and instead they had a punt before the two-minute warning. And, I mean, Prescott nearly throws a game-ending pick six because he had nowhere to go with the ball, trying to just throw a quick sticker out to Dalton Soltz of the entire stadium and the D'Amico Ryan's 49ers defense saw it coming. And 
you know, the announcers are kind of getting on Pascal, like, oh, maybe the spark could have come out sooner. Maybe it's not a good decision. But you look at the zoomed out view of it, and it's like, well, he had nowhere to go. You know, he's just trying to make a play within the scheme of the offense. He has to follow the play call unless he has that much liberty to audible a play in that big of a spot. Or, you know, someone just goes rogue and runs a different route, but they kind of just ran the routes that were called and trying to fit that ball in the salt was the only play, but it was not a good play at all. And nearly ended the game right there. The rest of the drive went uninspiring as they threw that deep shot to Gallup, who hopefully has another step in his legs this year and can make that type of play. But wasn't to be for Gallup on that play, and then you punt and go on to lose that game. So I'm right there with you on, you know, first and second down efficiency after just being reminded of just how much this team was struggling to have any type of creativity on those downs, give Prescott those favorable matchups to where you're not in third and long, fourth and long, throughout the consistency of a game, especially deep in the fourth quarter of a playoff game. You ended up losing with only 12 points on the board. You know, that number still stings every time I bring it up, the fact that, this offense did so much good during the regular season and their final point total that to be, you know, hanging up in the locker room as a reminder to be motivated to do better is that you went out with only 12 points on the board. Yeah. And speaking of Ezekiel Elliott, how does, uh, looking back on it now, the Ezekiel Elliott saga of, oh my gosh, he's holding out, he wants a contract extension, <gasps> compared to what's going on with Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs and them getting stuck with the franchise tag. Yeah, I kind of see a lot of similarities here in, you know, a small sample size of players. You know, first of all, just the on-field, they they all kind of feel like similar players style-wise. Of course, we have no way of knowing right now, you know, what's in the legs for Ezekiel Elliott if he does continue playing. But in his prime and then in Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs' current primes or what have you, you know, so do feel like some more players that are dynamic and do some pass catching out of the backfield and some more running styles. But I also see three running backs who found themselves in the unique scenario of you know, every team is going to push back on, oh, well, your position doesn't matter and we're just trying to get the most out of you and, and then move on. And we know that, you know, who was it, Austin Eckler for the Chargers, you know, can lead the league in all-purpose yards and all these great things and still – not end up with a contract. So, you know, we know teams will push back against any type of data that says running backs are important. But in this particular case of just a three-player sample size, these players, you know, given the teams they're on and everything, really do find themselves in a situation where they should be able to prove their value to a team. I mean, the Cowboys, maybe above any other team, were so committed to the run game with Elliott that he had that leverage to get his contract early. But, you know, Saquon Barkley, like, are the Giants ready to – you know, hand things over to Daniel Jones that much. Did you see enough of, from him last year? Yeah, they were good, but did you see quite enough where it's like, oh, we could just stick anyone back there with him, and Daniel Jones is ready to carry this, so I don't think so. So Saquon is really a key cog in an offense where running backs aren't that important, aren't that key to many other offenses around the league, and I would say the same about Josh Jacobs. With the Raiders, with a team that brought in Jimmy Garoppolo, who is now notorious with you know being with a great running game with the 49ers. I mean, when you think 49ers offense under Garoppolo, you mentioned three or four or five players that get handoffs in the game before you mention anything that has to do with Garoppolo throwing it to any of those guys. So you look at these running backs and the leverage they have, and it's very unique, and it could lead to a similar type of contract situation once they negotiate on the franchise tag. Yeah, and it shows how just brilliant Ezekiel Elliott was to realize 
Oh, wait. Garrett's going into his final year. He really loves running the football. We don't know what kind of security he has. So when I'm rolling in on the last year of my contract, I may get lowballed or not used enough or something. So I got to get my money now. And it was, you know, like I said, I mean, on Ezekiel Elliott's part, it was brilliant the way he got his extension. Yeah, it was. I mean, hopefully at this point, it's just something the Cowboys look at is, you know, not just how they approach running back, which is such a niche type of position from looking at things in any other way that we don't really talk about with other position groups. But, you know, just contracts in general, they have so many big ones, as you alluded to, to, to handle in these next couple of months. And hopefully they can look back on the Elliott situation as one where, you know, they can learn from the potential mistake of either paying too early or paying above market value for a player that you, know, you can kind of let the market develop more so and settle in. Going to be hard at those other money positions like cornerback of Diggs and receiver of Lamb. You know, we kind of know what the ongoing going rate for those players are. and It's only going up as they make such a big difference in the game. But, you know, and even for Parsons, of course, who is somewhat positionless but will want to get paid like a top pass rusher, which we know what that goes for too. But if anything, they can glean from the Ezekiel Elliott situation, it's just to obviously not, you know, get that far ahead of trying to predict the market and set the market at really any of these positions. And also what's funny is how the Cowboys were bad for drafting Ezekiel Elliott and having him be a part of their offense. But for the Giants and the Raiders, oh, well, hey, they need these running backs in camp. They're part of their offense. You know, they're not, you know, chastised for having blue chip running backs. It's just, oh, that's fine. They better get it fixed. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, just like a weird like fantasy football element to that. Like, you know, or like NFL Red Zone, you're seeing like Saquon and Josh Jacobs be a little bit more dynamic than Elliott was as a pass catcher. You know, we never saw Elliott's full potential as a pass catcher out of Ohio State. He got talked about every single year. Like, oh, he's going to do more in the pass game, more in the pass game, and never quite came to that point. But, you know, like I said, in the, in the red zone way that most fans are consuming football these days, it's, you know, you're seeing Barkley and Jacobs get their teams down there or get the ball in the end zone more often where you know they're not cutting into Cowboys games. So Elliott's moving the change on third and one, which is an important play, but not a highlight play. So you know, I feel like things like that change the perception on Elliott, but still will go down as you know one of the better backs that, you know, from an efficiency standpoint that the Cowboys have had. But as we talk about all the time, it just ends up on the pile of players that the Cowboys, uh, you know, unfortunately somewhat wasted their career of. You pile up these good players and try to create a window to win and players get hurt, players move on. Those things are guaranteed to happen every single year and really week to week in the NFL. And as that happens, you just realize the scope of, you know, how much it means that they can't, um, you know, find a way to get those playoff wins and get these players what they deserve to go further into the season. I mean, I I almost honestly think that I I don't want to say I was never an Elliott fan. You know, I was, but you know, you, you attach to certain players in ways of like, would you buy their jersey or not? I was never all the way up to that point with Elliott. You know, I loved watching him, but I was never like this super Ohio State, you know, Zeke fan, things like that. But I would almost argue of all the players on that list I just mentioned of you know guys that you feel bad for that couldn't have gotten to a bigger stage or. Who, you would have loved to see in an NFC Championship game. 
mean, doesn't Elliot almost go near the top at LS? I mean, he was such a gamer, such a competitive, fiery guy who doesn't remember his national championship game performance against Oregon, which was at AT&T Stadium and made the Cowboys brass that was there fall in love with him, where Ohio State had injuries all around him on offense, and he just said, no, nah, I got this, and tore through the Oregon defense like nothing we've ever seen and made that game a blowout that wasn't even close in the national championship game. So, And that was on the heels of you know, scoring an 80-yard touchdown and doing a whole lot more against Alabama in the semifinals. So of all the players you would have loved to see in an NFC championship game that now won't get the chance to as far as recent Cowboys who have moved on, I feel like Elliott goes near the top of that list. Yeah, Andy won't get to play in a top 10 uh, offense either. <laughs> um, Sean shared with me someone's top 10 rankings for offensive coordinators and without even calling a play somehow Brian Schottenheimer is number 10 was that in the NFC or in the NFL NFL yeah it says I'm looking at it right now it's because Kevin Moore now in the AFC is number two on here so. yeah he's top 10 in the NFL I mean like I said not even called a play yet you know but this is what happened? And he's not going to be calling the plays. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's even better. Yeah. He's not even made a suggestion yet, uh, and he's already topped in. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, to the credit of this list, a lot of really good offensive coordinators got head coaching jobs in this cycle. And, you know, it's going to continue. It's nothing new, but it just happened to really hit a peak this cycle. So it is a little bit hard to, you know, you think of the good offenses and then you try to think of the OC. It's like, well, actually the head coach is the de facto OC. And so that's continued. So it does kind of narrow the list of who you have to pick from is, you know, what makes a good OC. And you do have to kind of put play calling aside as something that doesn't disqualify them if they don't, call to place for their team, can they still be a great OC? And, you know, so this, this list is trying to give some credit to Sottenheimer in that way to, you know, think that he's going to still have a big role for this team and he's going to be truly right there next to McCarthy and not just, you know, in the background. And he's going to be there making suggestions, like you said, or making the game plan or predicting what the defense is going to do, any of these things. So, you know, it's more of a mark on what he's done in the past with some other teams like Seattle and where he came from too. But, yeah, to see him there in the top 10 already, I mean, even probably some Cowboys fans will hear this and be reminded that he actually was brought on as OC. It's been all about what the McCarthy offense is going to look like, the McCarthy install, the connection between now McCarthy and Dak Prescott, and that's where the focus deserves to be. And, you know, Sottenheimer will still have an important role and he'll still meet the media, I'm sure, as much as the OC in D.C. usually does. So we'll hear from Sottenheimer and Dan Quinn in those ways, but... Yeah, to think that he's top 10 before we even know what he truly does around the star every day 
is a, definitely a little bit mind-blowing, and especially on the same type of list that has Kellen Moore up there at number two in the league already. Yeah, I, is, is he maybe have the 10th best arsenal among offensive coordinators? Yeah, I'd agree. You know, but I, I don't know that he's top 10 right now at this moment because, you know, you just have to kind of show it to this point. But, you know, and Bill O'Brien's number three on this list. Yeah, that's also another laugh. Uh, you want to see uh, a Bill O'Brien offense? Put on the Texans every time uh, in 2018. That was the last time he was play caller there. Go put that offense on. Everybody was clamoring for him to get an offensive coordinator or give up play calling. I even watched, you know, Bill O'Brien's college offenses get in their own way. I mean, he was coordinating some college offense that had all the talent in the world, and they were still, you know, calling plays that got in their own way and allowing the defense to stay ahead of an offense they had no business staying ahead on. So, yeah, you know, I don't know how excited Patriots fans are about the whole operation these days. You know, Mac Jones and his job security is a big topic, but outside of that, yeah, I don't know if Bill O'Brien is exactly the high-ranking league-wide OC that is going to be the, the savior of all things, you know, Bill Belichick football up there in New England. I think I would put Schottenheimer ahead of him, though. Uh, I, could, I could go, yeah, I could go with you on that. You know, that's not just seeing things through a boy went silver colored sunglasses. Yeah, I could, I could go with you on that just because, you know, like I said, the arsenal that Schottenheimer has to work with, the idea that he could be more hands-off and kind of a week-to-week change his role to you know, really adapt to what the team needs. So it's like, hey, Mike McCarthy, you're calling the plays, but, you know, here's the looks we should be in. And this week we really need to hone in on what the defense is doing because they're multiple or it's a really good defense you're going up against and or it's not and it's a base defense so we can focus on our own stuff. And, you know, here's what we need to, to change and tweak and Schottenheimer having the reins on that. So his, his ability to be kind of hands-on in a lot of different areas can make up for – you know, what we know of him as a play caller, which he's not going to be, of course, here with the Cowboys. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, that, that's the way I would take it. All right, let's go ahead and get to some Cowboys birthdays here. Sean, starting on Wednesday, Noah Brown played receiver 2017 to 2022, turns 27 years old, and he's from... Flanders, New Jersey, and we were born in the same year, which is cool to see. But yeah, Flanders, which is way up in the north part of the state, so firmly in the uh, Taylor Ham cutoff line, probably not even worth asking him. I did tell uh, our Justin Navarez, who is going to be around the star of uh, working for Pro Football Network now, wishing her all the best moving on to that. You know, I told her on the way out, of course, it was great working with you, and also remind Dan Quinn that it's poor Quinn, not Taylor Ham, because you reported at the Combine that you were able to ask Quinn, and he calls it Taylor Ham, but I'm sure he has a partner in that when it comes to asking former Cowboy Noah Brown, who was, you know, from way up in the north part of New Jersey, up there in Flanders. And he also, does he believe in central Jersey or not? I kind of want to say yes, just because of how far north it is, you know, because you'd have to drive so far, like, you know, if you start driving north, you're just in Connecticut or New York, but if you, you start going south, like, you almost have to believe there's a central Jersey, because if not, like, what are you driving through? Like, you're just perpetually in North Jersey. Like, nobody wants to drive that long and think they're in the same part of the state, in a small state. You know, Texas, you can get away with that, because everyone knows, you know, 
if your goal from almost any point in Texas is to drive out of Texas, you're in for a haul, especially here in Austin or anywhere in the central part of the state. But, you know, New Jersey, you don't want to feel like you're just in the same place, even if you've been driving for a couple hours. So if you start heading south from Flanders, yeah, you cross off the north part and head into the central part. And on Saturday, Sean Lee turns 37 years old, linebacker for the Cowboys from 2010 to 2020. And also, oh, Ezekiel Elliott, who we've talked about ad nauseum. This episode turns 28 years old, which for running back, was here 2016 through 22. I mean, he may as well be Methuselah at that point. <laughs> Could be real interesting to see, you know, if any uh, dust can get kicked up again on his name, you know, being out there. We haven't heard, you know, of course, I think the Cowboys thing is, well, to bet at this point as it should be, but you know we haven't heard his name out there really for any other teams as well. So it could be real interesting to see if his name can work its way back into the uh, NFL landscape before we potentially have our first season without Ezekiel Elliott shooting up for anybody since his time in the league in 2016. And as for Sean Lee, fan favorite player, one of my favorites as well. You know, just one of those instinctual players where the body broke down before his football acumen and Mine did, and you know, always remember, I'm sure you'll know what week this was and remind me, but he had an interception in the end zone against the Eagles one year that, you know, ended a super long drive for the Eagles. It looked like they were destined to score. It was one of those demoralizing drives where they just do it to you five yards at a time, and then he intercepted a pass in the back of the end zone, and I'm pretty sure the Cowboys went out to win that game. So that's one of my favorite Sean Lee memories. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was in 2013 in October. Um then finally, Walt Garrison. Uh, he played fullback from 1966 to 1974. Turned 79 years old on Sunday. And he's just really a folksy, gave great interviews. And also what Don Meredith said about him was, why, if it's third and three and you need three yards, Walt Garrison, he'll get it. And then if it's first and 10, you know, you hand Garrison the ball, he'll get you three yards. Sure, I botched it, but yeah. you get the idea. I've heard that quote before, but not in a while. And it's always, you know, I'm glad you brought it up cause to be reminded by that. Yeah, it is one of my favorite ones. But, you know, running backs get remembered on this team more than almost any other position, quarterback aside. And Walt Garrison, one of the good ones, certainly a legend in a lot of fans' hearts and from the great town of Denton, Texas as well. Yeah. Running backs and analytics. <laughs> uh, no, seriously. I'm my Brian Davis jersey as we speak. The Cowboys, they were one of the first teams to use analytics. That's what they, because they had computer printouts. I talked with Charlie Waters. He told me this. They had computer printouts of the last, how they did against their last Let's say they play in the Steelers. They had a printout of their last five games against the Steelers. They had objectives. They had, you know, steps to meet those objectives. You know, so when they talk about the Cowboys having an analytics department and football analytics and all this, Cowboys were doing it in the 60s. Although I'm sure they didn't have EPA back then. All right. but. The analytics in football, 
That's what I'm saying. It's been around as long as Gil Brandt. Yeah, it's such an umbrella term that just kind of, you know, when you just say analytics and don't provide context on what these hires are actually going to be doing, which I think we tried to do today, of course. You know, when you just throw analytics out there, yeah, it's easy to lose sight of, you know, what they're actually doing. And, yeah, then it becomes less of a surprise that, you know, there was something, you know, resembling it back all the way back in the Gil Brandt days. So, you know, a lot of people just hear analytics and they kind of, turn away from it, they close off and think, oh, you know, our team's not doing that. They don't need that. It's too complicated or anything. But there's so many things that can fall under that umbrella that really every team and every, you know, workplace, even if you will, just around the world is, you know, using some form of data analytics just to know what's going on. Just a matter of how much further the Cowboys are pushing into this world to uh, hopefully leave no stone unturned in their, in their search for a deeper playoff run. What'll be fun is when they make these analytics Folks, available for question and comment. Then it'll start to get real for me. First question for me is like, what is it? Do you what is it you actually do here? Uh, my question would be, uh, do you use a <laughs> Mac or Windows? Probably Macs. I was a rebel in college. They they all suggested that you know we get Macs for like the you know TV editing and stuff we would have to do, and every single like department head and professor was like. Yeah, you know, get a Mac, you know, get it before you even move on to campus if you if you can and start getting used to using a Mac. And I said, no, nah, I don't like Macs and went through all of college with a Toshiba. It, that thing got beat up, but nonetheless, it, uh, we still made it through. So, yeah, um, but the analytics department in the NFL feel like most likely they're using Macs. And you can follow Sean Martin on his Toshiba at Sean Martin NFL. That thing was held together by tape and dreams by the end of, uh, you know, but as of the last couple of years, I think I probably still have it lying around somewhere. Be it's it served me well. I'm pretty sure it's the laptop. Uh, it must have been, yeah, the one I bought the Dallas to cover the 2018 draft. So it got me through that. I don't know if the tape was on it by then or not. It probably was. Yeah. Well, you got to share that on Twitter if you have a picture of it. You can follow me on Twitter at, at the real Mark Lane. Subscribe to the Hidden Yardage podcast on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. All right, one more week to go, Sean, and it's for real. Yeah, let's get out there to Oxnard, see what this thing ha- you know, what this roster has, and like I said, it's become an annual tradition from as far back as I can even remember to look at this roster and through rose-colored glasses and say, you know, oh, everyone's going to make the cut, and how do you even cut this down? Everybody's looking so good, but you know, no matter how that shapes out, it's always good to see the guys back in action, playing some real football activities, hearing from the players way more often, hearing from the coaches, and all of that gets going next week. Yep, you can bet your bottom analytics. So there it is. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts.